naked, covered in mud with a 12-gauge shotgun. Where do we start? Hey, this is Aga and Werner, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. John, as a start, um, this is a bit of an awkward start, it's just to give us a little bit of a background about yourself. Uh, I was juvenile delinquent, criminal, uh, when I was a teenager, 13, 14, 15 years old. Stole cars, broke into houses, had a crew, and got into a lot of trouble at one point. A lot of drugs and alcohol at a very young age, and I was on probation, criminal probation, and I had very serious charges. Uh, at the same time that was happening, I got a scholarship to go to university, and I went to university for three months, and, the re- and that's the only reason they didn't put me in, uh, in jail is because, oh, well, he's give him a break. And so I went to university, and after three months, I blew my scholarship completely and dropped out and then was back on probation, and then I ran away from home, and I was 17, and I hitchhiked to... California. And I didn't want to be a criminal. I liked excitement. And I realized when we were stealing cars and breaking into houses, I didn't care to steal anything. I didn't, it wasn't important to me. Uh, and I didn't want to hurt anybody, but I didn't really realize. You don't think about it when you're 16. It's just exciting. You don't think, well, someone will come into their house that you've stolen things from and they'll be crushed. It's a horrible experience. I didn't think about that. No excuse. Yeah. But so when I came to California, within I didn't want to do that. I, wanted, I quit drugs and drinking on my own for that time. But I didn't know what to do, but I loved the city of San Francisco. I loved cities. I looked at them as a fantasy environment as a child. I liked to climb things, and so I just climbed things. I climbed statues, and I climbed buildings by my, just by myself. And then within a year, less than a year, I ran into a group that was just starting called the San Francisco Suicide Club, which was an underground group. Uh, that's, and there's some stuff online about it. And it came out of an earlier iteration of free ideas in California, uh, free university system. But at any rate, anyone who joined the group could create an event. We call them events. And they could do it based on anything they wanted to. The tribe type, and this is the one thing about this group that's been different from every single group I've been involved in or known about or heard about or met people who were involved in since then is that the group was not, it wasn't an urban exploration group, it wasn't a street theater group, you know, it wasn't a psychological questing group, it was yeah. all of those things. Yeah. And we did all of that poorly, okay, because we were amateurs. So we, if someone wanted to do a street event, a street theater event, they had never done one before probably, but they thought, I want to go and dress up like Keystone cops and like, uh, like gorillas and go to the bank, the Bank of America, and try to deposit fish. Okay, but we had never done it before. But we had costumes. We collected costumes, and we would we did that. It was done as an event. It was very frightening because we were almost beaten up and thrown out by the police. And then uh, we also we did a, an event where we did uh, where there were fur protesters, and we were uh, eating pigeons. So and it's hard to explain, but it was yeah. very. They got very angry at us, and and but but it wasn't just that and. You could do an event like exploring was very big, and I like personally. I was very young, but I was a good climber. Yeah. I like to explore and to go into things, and so we would uh, do many events where we would. At that time, San Francisco and the Bay Area had many abandoned buildings because the economy was changing dramatically. So many abandoned factories, big factories, and we would explore them 
And so an event could be simply going to a giant brewery and exploring it for the first time. And then later we'd get more elaborate and we would create games and events in the buildings and in cemeteries at night, on the streets at night. And then some other people were more elaborate. They wanted to do what are now called LARPs. So we would do LARPs. And if you look at my, uh, I, on my website, I posted an event that we did in 1982, a lot of material about it, what would be called the LARP now, uh, that we did in San Francisco that was one of my favorite things I've ever done in my life. It was a wonderful event. Your web address, by the way? Uh, John W. Law, J-O-H-N-W-L-A-W.com. Uh, and I've been posting a lot of stuff related to this and, and some other creative endeavors uh, recently. And so this game, I joined this group when I was 17-year-old juvenile delinquent, and so it made me a very ethical person. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, right? It's true. So, the, so your, your group actually transformed you in a way? Absolutely. Yeah. But we would do events and activities that were illegal, but not immoral. And there's a big difference. Illegal is not immoral. Because something illegal doesn't make it immoral. And if something is immoral, it doesn't matter if it's illegal or not. You still don't do it. It could be immoral and perfectly legal. But if you do it, you're an asshole. Our idea was that we would do, for instance, we would uh, sneak into buildings and bridges. We climb, We were best known for climbing bridges. We were a secret group, but word gets around sometimes. And we were best known for climbing the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge. And so some people knew we did this. This was illegal, surely. But the way that we did it is we were very careful. We didn't let anybody see us. We left nothing behind. We changed nothing in the environment. We took nothing which later became a philosophy, comes from many groups, we didn't invent it, uh, but it was one, we, we definitely invented our own iteration of it, which is leave no trace, okay, and that's where that came from. And this was in places where we would do an event, let's say, in an abandoned building, and we would have a big dinner that we'd all bring our food at the end of the event, we'd eat together, we would clean all of our garbage up and take it out of the building. We didn't even leave garbage in an abandoned building because that was our philosophy. We you were change. never there. Never there, yeah. a ghost. And so two reasons, two main reasons for that philosophy. The first being um, you didn't want anybody to know you were there so you could come back or so they didn't know. And the second one is because it was simply changing the environment was aesthetically incorrect. I mean, it was not the right way to do. You were there. We we're not supposed to be there. So if we we're there, you know, we need to honor that. And, and this was a philosophy that grew up into a, a subculture in the Bay Area that's had some resonance later because the Burning Man event's the big thing everybody knows about that came out of this, yeah. came out of this earlier group. Um, and nobody, it's not that well known, the, the early history of Burning Man, because it's a corporation now, and it, that story doesn't serve them. But uh, with that said, that's the truth. That's yeah, how that's things came the, about. These events that you talk about in the early days, is like, it's really personal stuff, right? It's not like something that you guys threw open to everybody else. It's like this group. It's personal in that the events created were the personal creation of an individual or a couple of people that that were open to the members of the group who could then come help them create their fantasy and make it a real reality, which in turn would influence the people who helped and they would get ideas about what they could take. So... But but no, it wasn't open to the general public. You had to know about it. It was open to anyone who was interested before the Internet. So if you were to do this now, I can talk about this later, but the Internet changed things dramatically, but um, in good ways and in bad ways both. But in the earlier iteration, the unifying organ or mechanism was a newsletter. It was a paper newsletter, and it was mailed out uh, once a month, and it was edited and cut and pasted you know, with scissors yeah. and glue. And so everyone in the group was encouraged to, if not expected, to, their, to do the newsletter at least once. 
so it rotated so no one controlled the edit there's no I'm the editor I decide anyone could be the editor so some months the newsletter was very nice graphically beautiful other months it's like you could barely read it but that wasn't important you know as long as you knew the information was what was important and so this rotated so there's no control and the what little money there was which was for mailing costs you know very small a dollar a person give a dollar every six months there was a treasurer that rotated every four months so no one was a treasurer it was always someone else so the people who started the group created this mechanism and then let it go, like a gift, which is very important because gifts are very important. Yeah. And so this inspired me. I was 18, 17, and I just turned 18 after the group started. And it was mind-boggling. And, I, and I, I found so lucky to find exactly the right thing to do for me. Many things are exciting, you know, being an explorer of the Amazon or being an astronaut or whatever. I would, those would be great, but I would, did the better thing for me. <laughs> How lucky is that? It was by chance, nothing else, by chance. So, uh, and that was very fortunate. And the, and the other amazing thing about the Suicide Club, which I'd like to talk about before maybe we move on to some other groups, is that because of this type of the experience, they're very intense, and we would do events that were illegal often, like climbing bridges or sneaking into tunnels. So it's very, 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 uh, made the group very tight. You know, you, when you risk things with people and you see how they act in very frightening circumstances, then you know more about them. And so we became very close, like a family, in good ways and bad ways. Yeah. <laughs> but it encouraged people, this, this atmosphere of engagement and collaboration, uh, I call it a confederation of individuals, because the people in the group were not joiners for the most part. You know, they're very individual. But, uh, but it encouraged everyone to create realities based on their loves. And I'd give two or three examples. One, there's one man who was a quiet bookman. He was young, 24, older than me at the time. He was 24. I was 18. Don Heron is his name. And he was intellectual and a, a fan, they call him, a fanboy of, uh, of detective fiction and of mystery and weird fiction. And so he decided, he was encouraged by the group to do two things. One was because of his love and knowledge of Dashiell Hammett, who's a very famous American detective writer. He invented the detective fiction genre. Uh, Don started doing a walking tour because Dashiell Hammett wrote stories based in San Francisco, very iconic stories. So Don knew all about this. So he did a walking tour, and people would go on his walking tour, and he would tell them the history. And when he started doing it, he was terrible because he wasn't a performer. He was shy. After a little while, he became very sonorous and very good at uh, theatrical at it. And yeah. he, to this day, which is 42 years later, he still does this tour. It's the longest-lived literary walking tour in America. He's been covered by every pre European press, by media, constantly. New York Times, London Times, you know, Le Mans. Everybody's covered him at some point. Very famous walking tour. The other thing he did early on in 1979, 78, he started doing detective games, LARPs. We didn't call them LARPs. We didn't know what that, you know, there was, there was no terminology. But he did these very elaborate detective games, and we would play characters. So he went on to a career as a writer and a and a tour guide. So his entire career was formed by this fantasy. That's one example. Um, there's a woman, Louise Darmilowitz, who is also very quiet and bookish, 
and she but she liked making things and so we would do these events and when we started we were amateur we didn't know very much but she could sew and so she would because of necessity she would make costumes and then she started making costumes for people and then she really started getting into making costumes <laughs> and now she makes costumes for the opera she's a professional she makes costumes for the opera for the sisters of perpetual indulgence she makes these astonishing costumes and makes a good living an okay living doing it because San Francisco is very expensive. Um, Bill Costura, uh, and when I met him, he was a tw- 23 or 24 year old, uh, unemployed. He dropped out of college. Um, he didn't seem very ambitious, but he's a nice guy, smart. But and he was a dishwasher. That was his job. So we would sneak into go into abandoned buildings a lot to do events. And he developed a great fascination with abandoned buildings. He started looking at them, and then he started reading about them, and then he started studying them seriously. And then he ended up because he he you know he didn't have a job yet. He had a terrible job. And then he uh, started realizing that he really loved Russian Hill, which is a certain area in San Francisco, older area, great history going back to the Russians and into the Spanish. Uh, land grants and then so he researched this and very rich people live on Russian Hill and he started writing dense reports with photographs historical analysis of the house that they lived in the mansion that they lived in and he would talk to someone go look I you're a very interesting historical house and I do these historical reports would you like and they'd pay him and he'd write this wow. extensive report he started doing that and then he did that for many years and then he ended up becoming a historian he was a pointed to the San Francisco Landmarks Board by the mayor of San Francisco, and later he got a job as the uh, historian for Caltrans, which is a California state transportation district. So he became a historian because of his interest in abandoned buildings. This is why that, that group was so magical yeah. to me. What I find interesting is that, um, I mean, in my, in my world where I come from, we go out and we ask people what they like, and we, we design experiences to kind of align with that. But what I'm hearing from you is like a lot of the people that you've been working with, they started off with a, something that they were passionate about. And then it starts just circling out and it starts drawing people in. Drawing, drawing people. Right. And do you think that you can could do that with, with intention? So, I mean, with intention? Yeah. Sure. I think you can. Intention is, is good. Um, we did it organically, which is also good and also surprising because you, ne- you can't see what's going to happen. With intentions to create a certain type of uh, process that will then have a certain effect or a certain outcome, um, sure, of course you can do that. Yeah. People are intelligent, they can design formats wherein that will work. Taking spontaneity and the complete unknown out of something changes a character in a way. Not, it's just a different thing, similar in great respect, but different in certain respects. So of course there's nothing wrong with that, it's great, and you can do it. Making a business out of it and monetizing it, which is also not bad, I don't, I'm not against that at all, even though I've never done that. With one exception, I've never done that. I think it's fine, but it, to understand it fully, you need to understand it changes certain aspects irrevocably. There's certain things that are just going to be, regardless of your intentions. Because <laughs> there's certain realities about business that if you don't accommodate those realities about business, you will not be in business. And it's that simple. They're the first thing that they demand to be the first thing that, that are addressed. And this is something that maybe also you probably also have a key insight on this is that you can create these experiences, but at some stage it needs to be a business or you need to make a living out of it. Or, or you need to have a day job like me because I've had a day job my entire life, which takes a certain amount of time. So I can't spend all of my time doing creative work. Uh, but I've incorporated my creative work sometimes into my day job or my day job skills. 
like rigging skills or professional skills that I developed over time. I first got rigging skills from doing fun events, but then I really became professional. Um, and uh, electrical signs, which is my trade, I'm, I'm a bonded, licensed electrical contractor, which is not easy to do, but it took years to do that. So my and with neon, which is my field, I started using that. I never thought of myself as an artist, but I started using neon in events that we were doing. And then I started using it in presentations. And then uh, when we started doing Burning Man, I, I said, well, I'll put neon on the Burning Man. And that was something yeah. that I did. And it was just an organic process. And then I would use neon, you know, like a, a accoutrement or a part of another event. For instance, we did a thing called the Billboard Liberation Front where we would alter billboards. I don't know if you know about that group or not, but no. uh, it was pretty well known for a long time. And if you know what Banksy and Shepard Ferry, we were pre precursors to that. We would take large billboard, uh, ultra, billboard advertisements and completely change the meaning. And then we would do press releases. We'd write a press release. And initially we were a terrorist organization yeah. because we thought that was funny. And then and so we'd send out a, a communique going, we've taken this billboard and we've made it say what it should say. Later, as we got, as we got older, we decided it would be better if we were an advertising agency, which in truth is a terrorist organization anyway, by definition. Exactly. <laughs> and so but we become an advertising agency and we, we would say things and, and from the first billboard that we did, which was in the 1970s, we would do these press releases and we would just write the most outrageous stuff and the press would repeat it, literally, as though it were true. And I realized at a very young age that you cannot believe anything that you read in the press, regardless of the political leaning of the press. It doesn't matter. Left-wing press lies just as much as, as, as uh, Fox News. They lie just as much. It's just in different ways. They lie in ways that make certain people comfortable. Like the right-wingers lie in certain ways that makes their people comfortable. They're, they're all liars. You know, it's interesting you mentioned this because also as, then, as people who design experiences or artists, we also have a responsibility in a way. You kind of played with that idea with like changing the billboards mm -hmm. and then it gets sent out to the press and then they take it as truth. And then it's out of your hands yeah. and they can do, you know, you can't control what they're going to say. You can try and frame things. That's what they say these days. You can try and frame things in a way that they will repeat your propaganda. <laughs> but you can't count on it. But we had a good record. We had a pretty good record with that. They typically would write what we wanted them to write. Yeah. And during that process, there were two times over the course of many years that we were doing the billboards where we literally kidnapped journalists. Okay, like physically kidnap them. And uh, it was, a, I looked at it as street theater, because I looked at the billboards that we were doing as, as theater, in a way, as kind of like underground theater and, and uh, transgressive theater. People would see a billboard on the street, the message has been changed to something very funny. Like, there, to give you an example, one billboard that we did was uh, a beautiful painted backdrop with an impressionist scene of two couples on, on, under a parasol drinking, very pleasant, wind blowing. And the caption was, the beginning of something wonderful. And then above it were these giant neon letters that said Hillsdale, which was the name of a shopping center. But if you turn off the first three letters and the last three letters, the message that you see as you're driving down the freeway is LSD, the beginning of something wonderful. And all you had to do is turn the letters off. It was very easy, but it completely changed the message and it, making it a better message. Hence, our task, our job as, uh, as Billboard Liberation Front advertising agency was to improve the advertising copy and the message. And this was repeated in the press. 
So we manipulated the press that way, not because they're stupid and not because they didn't know they were being manipulated, but because it was good copy and funny. And they knew that we knew that they knew that we knew. (laughs) But they ran it because it sold more beans or whatever they're selling. And and we knew this by understanding how advertisers work. So and this was much fun. So with the Billboard Liberation Front, you know, once again, the idea was to encourage everyone to look at advertising because advertising is a process whereby money tells you what to think. They make a message and they put it in your head. That's what it is. So if you, you don't even have to understand it, but if you intrinsically observe the message that they're sending to you and if you change if you change what they're saying in your head, they're no longer selling to you. It's no longer just you're being sold to. It's now a dialogue. Yeah. Okay, That's how I looked at it. And also in the theater, so for kidnapping the journalists, so journalists played a very important part in this because they're an organ. They're like a giant megaphone for an act. You can't, and there's no guarantee they're going to do what you want them to at all. They're individuals. Many of them are quite smart. But, uh, but with that said, if you give them a good story, they'll want to run with it. And if they're a little sympathetic to your ideas, maybe they'll not look at certain things. Okay. So we had a journalist who wanted to do a feature article for Wired magazine on, on the group. And he, he, wrote, he writes for uh, Advertising Age and for the New York Times and for two major journalists. He was in New York, and he wanted to come to San Francisco to cover us. And so we said, okay, I don't know if we want to do that. But if you have to come out, we'll contact you um, and let you know what to do. And so he got... He was paid by the magazine to come to San Francisco. When he got to the airport, we said, don't worry, go to the airport and we'll contact you. So he doesn't know. He doesn't know us. He's never seen us. We use phony names. We've been in the press, but we don't use our real names. We don't have a phone number or a mailing address, right? So he's literally flying to San Francisco having no idea. We could just not even show him. He could just be in San Francisco. So he shows up and we call him on the white phone in the the airport. You go, Warren Berger, go to the bathroom on this level and look behind the last toilet. And that's where your instructions are. So he did that, and we had a setup. We had a setup where we followed him at different places. We told him to go to take a cab to he's on an expense account, right? Yeah. And we asked him, well, "You're on an expense account, right?" He goes, uh, "Yes." And he goes, that's good because you're going to spend a lot of money. <laughs> and, and, and we said, "Okay." So we told him to take a cab. So his instructions told him to take a cab to a bar on Haight Street and to ask for a certain drink, a very special drink. And the bartender was in on it, and, would, yeah. and so the bartender gave him the drink and handed him a piece of paper, which gave him the next, his next instructions. And they said to go to the, an intersection and look to the sky for his next message. That's all it said. So he went to this intersection, and there was a billboard at the intersection which we had put a personal message for him on the billboard, right? And so, and he's an advertising writer. He writes about advertising his whole life. He, later on, when he wrote about it, he flipped, he was flipping out because like, this literally, un- first time he really understood targeted marketing. <laughs> and this is a long time before internet targeted marketing, right? This is 19... 19- 99 I think so from there we had him go to uh, a, a junkyard there's a giant junkyard in this industrial really scary industrial neighborhood and the guys who run it we know them and the guys who run it are big scary you know, kind of guys and so he said go to, and so his next message is go to Ace Auto Dismantlers and look look for a 19 the 78 like like Grand Marquis which is a big stupid American car right go look for it and look in the trunk you'll find your next clue there 
And, and, we're, and meanwhile, we're set up and fo- we're photographing him from like 100 feet away. We're documenting the whole thing. We're photographing him in hidden places. We've set it all up. Like at one place, we're up on top of a building four stories above, and we're photographing him as he walks below us in the junkyard. The junkyard guy, we have a hidden camera in the office of the junkyard showing the whole thing. So he, he fi- goes in a junkyard, and he goes to Billy Kennedy, who's the junkyard guy. He's a big, burly, you know, gruff Irishman, right? And he goes, uh, do you have a Mercury Grand, you know, like, a, you know, like a, the car and like, ah, I don't know, uh, you know, yeah. oh yeah, there's a red one back there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. what do you want? You're looking for parts or what? And he goes, well, I just want to. And he goes over there and the trunk's locked. And he goes, can I get in the trunk? And there, there are eight people in the junkyard and they're all in on it, right? And they're all acting like. And, and so, he, so he goes and he's trying to get in the trunk. He can't get in the trunk. And I go, what do you want to get in the trunk for? You leave something in it? So, so Jericho, who's this totally scary looking punk rocker dude on a forklift, so I can get in the trunk. And he takes a forklift, a big ass forklift, and goes over and jams it in the car and pops the trunk open. And there's a body in the trunk. Oh my God. It's a dummy, and the message is in in the coat pocket. So the journalist, he doesn't know these guys, and they're like, "What's this? What's this body?" They're all getting starting to get really aggro, and he's like, and he goes and he starts searching through the pockets and gets a message and runs out of the junkyard. So anyway, we did a couple of other things. He had to go to a store and find a purse and some other things, and then we ended up having an interview with him. We had him go to an abandoned railway tunnel and take a train and take a certain stop, get off and go to an abandoned railway tunnel. And uh, we, we met, and then we kind of we were standing behind pillars, and we followed him into this tunnel where we had an interview. We were all wearing animal masks. Oh my God. <laughs> but it was a theater piece for one guy, and he knew that, but he never said that, but he clearly knew it. And so uh, Wired spiked the article for some reason, but it was an advertising age, and, and, and he also uh, syndicated and it was in some other magazines. And we, the message for us was the message that we were trying to put out is you can anybody can alter a billboard, and you know, and anybody can have can make theater, yeah. you know. But see, he was a personal organ that would then it was like an like an amplifier. And also, you changed the role, so he were journaling. Absolutely, we made him be a good. We made him be a good journalist because he had to. He was in a junkyard. With, he didn't know. Maybe these people are crazy and they're going to kill him. He really didn't know. And the junkyard guys are scary. If you didn't know them, you'd be like, these guys are scary. They're total cream puff. But you know, they seem like really, and and so he's he got the he got the clue. He didn't run away before he got the clue. He stayed until he got it, even though he was frightened. So he was a good journalist, you know. So the, and that got our message out, you know, whatever it was. It's like, our message is really simple. It's like have fun and don't do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> people like this journalist or these people who are bringing fish to the bank. What is the excitement that makes them do it? Well, we live in a world where, as William Burroughs wrote about the sub-theme, I think, in almost all of his work, is uh, control and how human organizing of any type invariably and inevitably moves towards more hierarchical control, no matter what you're doing. You can take the most free thing, the most brilliant idea, the most anarchist concept, and if it becomes successful and powerful, and the example I would use would be Burning Man, it becomes a top-down hierarchy that's controlled by a small number of people and they utilize the power uh, for different reasons and it can be a good thing in some ways or bad thing or both usually both if it's if it's big institutions if you institutionalize something it becomes an institution mm-hmm. you know and so people's natural inclination to want to be free bridles it being institutionalized part of human nature wants to be taken care of and controlled they want to have an institution that gives them a pillow to lie in as uh, philosophically in a way that it's comforting but they also want to not be told what to do and go fuck you i want to do what i want to do yeah. okay so you have this constant like uh, battle in a human psyche between these two 
things. So I just lean more towards a fuck you, I want to do what I want to do. <laughs> While realizing the value in certain, you know, in, in, certainly we have to have certain regulations, the wrong word, but certain uh, social concepts that people adhere to so that we don't all just kill each other immediately. I'm, I'm not uh, averse to that. But with that said, you have to have freedom where it's not mediated by an institution or by a government or by your mom or by a school or whatever. You have to have that. And if you don't, you're missing an enormous part of being, having a real life. So anything that, you know, any institution you know, you should be able to make fun of it. If you can't make fun of an institution, something's desperately wrong. If you make fun of the king and then come and cut your hand off, you're in the wrong place. You know, it's a bad place to be. So I think people, all, most people, certainly any people have an ounce of creativity, part of them wants to have that freedom. It's why people watch movies where the gangsters kind of do whatever they want, or and they like that. Or they watch movies where where con men make fun of the you know the government or whatever. You know that's why they're so popular, because people want that. And most people don't know that they can do it themselves. And play is where you can do that safely, in a way. Um, and if play is part of your actual day to day life. There are risks that you take. Doing a billboard illegally is a risk. You can go to jail for it. You get you know, jailed for it. You could get uh, hurt if you're not careful. You could hurt somebody else, which is really the worst thing. But uh, those are all risks that you take. But that makes the experience much more real in a way. And it also makes you much more aware of your environment, much more aware of your fellows, and much more aware of your responsibility in the world if you take those risks. So I, I believe that. You know, some people think I'm crazy, but whatever. You know. So you talk a lot about ethics and morality. Oh, yeah. How do you interpret it? The distinction is, is not hurting someone. That's a simple distinction. It's very easy. There's nothing complex about it. For instance, uh, you were in the event that we did yes, two days ago. Anything that we were doing aesthetically or for the, for the experience or for... Uh, our reward for doing a cool thing, our ego or whatever, that was all 100% subservient to safety. I would have stopped. If anything was unsafe, I would have stopped it. It wouldn't have been, we have to keep doing it to get the photograph. And then the guy falls off the ledge because you're not paying attention. That's immoral completely. If you do something you're not supposed to do, you instantly are hyper-responsible to not hurt anybody. Okay, and if you do hurt somebody, you've failed dismally. So that's what I mean about ethics. They're simple concepts to me. Because uh, really, I mean, ethically, what's, what's truly wrong? I mean, truly wrong is to, is to impede someone in their life, is to hurt someone or to take advantage of someone or to take something away from them. To me, that's immoral. To, to make a prank that, people, that doesn't hurt somebody, but that they can look at and they can decide what they think about it, that's another thing. Um, and corporations aren't people, so you can do whatever you want to them, as far as I'm concerned, and it's purely fine with the ethics with that. And even with that said, like when we're altering a billboard for a giant corporation, even then we don't damage the billboard. We go to great lengths. We put on these pastovers, and we, uh, we make them easy to take off so that the image is different. I, I retired from a few years ago, but we did it for 34 years. We'd leave a very exacting note for the sign workers going, hello, sorry to, you know, to make more work for you, but this is how you, how you restore the billboard, okay. literally. And I have, I have examples of these. And we would leave a six-pack of beer for them. For the workers. And then later, after we've been doing it for a while, as we got older and we were a little bit better off, we'd leave a bottle of really good single malt whiskey for them. Um, so they were actually looking for your billboards. <laughs> so the sign workers think we're great. 
And the other thing is because I, as a propaganda organ, as a propaganda mechanism rather, but also as a practical measure, I decided after doing this for a few years, and we'd already started using the, the theory of not damaging the billboard, I started propagandizing the fact that we didn't damage a billboard. I made a big deal about it. Whenever I did a media interview, I would say, oh, and we, we go to great pains, you know, we actually improve the message and we improve the billboard, but we also don't damage the billboard. We're not vandals. And, and language is so important because people just naturally think when they see something like, oh, it's vandal. Vandalism. And I said, not vandalism at all. We're improving the message. We're helping the copywriters from Shiat Day and Ogilvy Mathers because they need some help because, you know, they're not the greatest copywriters in the world, <laughs> which they actually are the greatest copywriters in the world. So we're making fun of them, and they get the joke because they started using our methods in about... Probably, 19, in about and probably they would like to say your message. They're just not right. allowed... But in 1993, in 1993, those companies started using our methods, and other groups, not, we weren't the only group doing this, they started using our methods, and they call it guerrilla advertising. Exactly. So we inspired guerrilla advertising were, I'd say, one of the main groups that inspired that, for better or worse, because they used our tactics to sell more junk. You know, good stuff, too, sometimes. I mean, you know, I like nice cars and good whiskey, or I used to like good whiskey, but, you know, I'm not against advertising. I'm just against a continual bombardment of complete bullshit and people having to feel like they need to buy stuff that's not necessary. It's just it's so, so wasteful and stupid. This is the thing that I keep on noticing with with myself, but also with, with people who are younger than me, that they slowly become more and more immune to these messages that they are. Yes. So we got the banner blindness in a way, like, you know, digital, but also physical. Do you also see this? The people who design um, commercial advertising messages and the people who own these companies, they're, they're, they're extremely wealthy and they're extremely powerful, and they hire the smartest, most brilliant people in the world to craft their messages. So they're always at least at parity with the cultural uh, ex expositions that are taking place. So anything that naturally takes place in, among the youth and they're rejecting certain things, they'll have uh, advertising people who are studying youth culture to immediately co-opt that. They've been doing that since the 80s or 90s. But the kids are getting smarter. Yes, and it's much harder to sell to them, but it's still they're still sold to. And now with the Internet, um, people are designing their own enslavement through the Internet. They design their own enslavement through the algorithms that they feed, which then feed back to them what they want to hear. So selling in many ways is easier. But with that said, the kids, I know this because I'm, I'm very involved in, uh, and I love the urban exploration world, and it's a whole world. There's a whole different levels and different people, and most of them are very cool, and some of them are dicks, and there's a whole range, like any giant field of endeavor or practice. But with that said, on the balance, the, the philosophy and the underlying feeling is very positive to me. So I, go, I know about events uh, and go to around the world where young people in their 20s, 30s, Uh, I'm usually by far the oldest person there. There's a couple of other old geezers and geezettes that show up occasionally. <laughs> yeah, there's one woman uh, who's uh, big in big in the U U Urbex who goes to a lot of the a lot of things. And I don't I go to as many as I can, uh, which is a couple a year. But people do it all year round, and they have conventions in different cities, and no one knows about it unless they're in that world. But it's not advertised anywhere. It's not online. You can't read about it in a forum. There's no flyer, and so 
if you really love that world, you can find it. There are clues. You have to follow the clues to find it. But nobody's going to tell you because that's just not how it's done because they know that the, the marketing world wants to market this stuff. And they do extreme sports and all of a sudden they market the crap out of it. And some of the urban explorers take the, they work for Red Bull or whatever. And they, but those are small percentage, yeah. small percentage. And the other thing about, there are multiple levels in that world. One level is location. It's all about locations and about the, the purity and access to locations. And so some people, if a location gets burned, in other words, it becomes known of, outside the community then it's not as bad so if you get a photograph taken there and it gets in a newspaper they're not going to hate you as much but if you expose a location that's a secret location it's very difficult to get into that only people who really spend the time and energy learning how to do it if you expose that location people will be angry with you rightfully angry with you because the only reason to do it is for ego when we were talking about this whole idea, so you were talking about the ball which you've done, and then it became kind of a commercial thing in the advertising agencies, which I was part of, kind of latch on. But then I was thinking, like, the one thing that you didn't have to do is you kind of have to stay ahead of the curve, right? Or, like, what I'm hearing from you at the moment is that it becomes a little practice that people, it's not exclusive, so you're not excluding anybody. No, but they have to find it, and it takes merit. They have to find the clues to then enter yes. the community, so there's a layer of protection around. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that the kids have done in response to the instant communication on the Internet. They'll protect themselves that way, because they don't want... It's not that they're elitist, necessarily. Some are. Most aren't, in my experience. And of course, I don't know everything about it at all. It's a whole world. I only know a small part of it. But it's the most exciting thing I could do. And it's not about... You know, it's like they're not trying to change the world. They're trying to change themselves. Yeah, they're just it's like change the world. Oh, we're going to change the world. That's just doesn't. The world's not going to change. Maybe a little bit, you know. Maybe in your corner. Yeah, maybe the corner of the world. Maybe. But don't you think that's pro- a part of the core of the problem? We think we have to change everybody else, but actually we need to. Change. We need to change ourselves, you know. And that's you know you don't even know that until you start doing it, and even then you still don't see. You never see the end of the process. There isn't an end of the process. It's a continual process. That's why you make an institution out of something. The ideas and the concepts and the core philosophy of something, you know, like Cacophony Society, which is the later iteration of the Suicide Club, which evolved into things that are well known, like uh, uh, Burning Man, SantaCon, if you know what that is, and uh, the whole Fight Club philosophy that Chuck Palahniuk uh, wrote about. Those are things that came out of this whole world that I'm talking about, the Suicide Club. And there are certain representations in each of those iterations of this world that you know, clearly go back to things that were done, that we were doing, and that we were encouraged by groups that came before us. There was an entire underground world that when you first join it, you have no idea about it. You just know that you're doing these really amazing things. And as when I was 18 doing it, I thought we invented everything we were doing. So how could anybody possibly, this is great, nobody's ever done this before. <laughs> we all think that at some point, right? But you need to believe that as an 18-year-old. You need to believe that. And I realized even a few years later, by the time I was 25, Somebody would come to me and go, hey, I have this great idea. We want to do midnight golf in a, you know, with glowing golf balls. And I'm like, ah, we did that five years ago. <laughs> and then I, pretty quickly I realized, you know what? That's not helping them, telling them that. And so I, somebody would come to me and go, oh, we have this great idea. We're going to sneak into this abandoned building and we're going to play a, do a theater game in the top floor. And I'm like, wow, what a great fucking idea. That's awesome. And then they would do it and it would be different than what we did. I mean, it's a similar type of activity. But what they came up with, I never would have thought of. So to encourage people, it's just not why you don't, I mean, and it's all about, it's around ego. I mean, I have an ego. Anybody who does anything has an ego, and you need to feed that. But you don't need to feed it till it becomes a giant, red, hulking monster that eats everything in its, in its wake. 
you know I mean a little bit of attention and people liking what you do is good but going to try to get that at the expense of everything else is not good it's terrible it doesn't create a community of, of ideas or people it doesn't encourage other people to do stuff so and it's a balance especially if you've been around for a long time and you've done things that people know about I have no interest in Burning Man or anything like a nun. I'm glad it's, I did it, you know, the part, my part in it I'm proud of, but it's just like, no. I mean, it's not what I want. People still get something out of that, and that's good. A lot of people get something out of it. Mostly the people who get something out of Burning Man get it out of their immediate community that goes to that event, like a convention maybe. That's how I look at it. But uh, as far as the hierarchy of the event and the control of it and that we're all going to change the world with Burning Man, it's a giant party with a bunch of rich white people fucking doing drugs and getting laid. That's a big aspect of that event. Yeah, yeah. Is that going to change the world? Uh, no, not really. You know, but there's some little things that come out of it that actually do have a positive effect, and I'm aware of that. But that's not the main focus of the corporation that owns the event. Okay, not really. That's the main focus of their public relations. I would like to dig a little deeper into this aspect of ego. This is something that we've been discussing, because on the one hand, when you're a designer, a little ego is not unwelcome because you have, you have to, have to yeah because you have to go and show something that you created to the world and without ego you just can't do this of course uh, but on the other hand too much ego in the design world is something that just destroys the collaboration destroys so many things so there must be a balance in it how do you see this there's no formula you know it's a, a lot of the urbex things that i go to i don't nobody knows my history and i don't say hey i did this and i did that and i did this mm-hmm. And I do that consciously. If somebody finds out, it's only secretly, to be honest. It's like if somebody finds out, oh, you did this thing. It's like, oh, yeah, I did that thing. You know, I mean, for sure, it's like a drug. It feels good. And it's not bad. And having positive reinforcement where you do, if you didn't get any positive reinforcement what you do, you wouldn't do anything. You'd just lie in a corner and die. But there's a, there's a balance. And it's a constant. You have to be aware of the balance or aware of that dance. And you have to, be, you have to continually rethink your goals. Why am I doing this? What am I doing this for? Am I doing it to get laid? Am I doing it to get money? Am I doing it because I, I would die if I didn't do it because I love it because it's an intrinsic part of my human being? It's a balance of all those things, you know. I mean, the Suicide Club was a great group. Everybody got a lot out of it. That was, but most people got a lot out of it and were involved in it. But after five years, everybody had slept with everybody else, and it was difficult. Became more difficult because I'm not going to go to that event because so and so is going to be there. <laughs> so you know what I mean. So there are there are all these like human. Foibles that, that rise up that you have to, if you let them stop you, then, then you're done. You have to figure out how to, and, and reinventing is the way to do it. Everything's temporary. There was a great group in San Francisco, I can't mention the name because they're an underground group, but they did some of the most amazing underground uh, events in recent history, in many ways, way more complex than stuff we did earlier. And uh, they lasted for about three years, and there were people involved that were mostly in their 20s, and I got to know many of them, many of the principals. And when it ended, there are different reasons why it ended. There's one main principal who actually financed some of the stuff because had, they had some financing, unlike many groups I've been involved in. And the young people who were involved, they were all really smart and really creative, but they were crushed. Like, we did all this energy and three years into this, and like there were 20 or 30 people who built it, and they were just crushed. And I'd tell them, i go, look, Everything that happened was a gift. Everything that you went through, you met all of these people. You didn't know this person two years ago. You did these incredible events, and yes, it's over now, but 
you're and they've all gone on they're all doing the most amazing things and they still collaborate some of them with one another and they new collaborators and a new iteration of it and now they're okay and i had that when the suicide club ended i was literally crushed i thought my life was over i was 25 i was 23 when the club ended and 25 with when my friend who was one of the main organizers died and i was just crushed i thought i was finished i i had no interest i was lethargic for a couple of years i didn't do anything uh and uh, very depressing, and I just didn't know any better. I didn't know that these things come and go, and then the new iterations started started to grow out of the old. So that's what I tell them. That's what I tell them. It's like, don't worry. If it ended, your life's not ended, and what you know is still in you. Because when one door closes, a whole bunch Absolutely. of other ones open up. Right? And then, but another thing is that somehow, and this is something that it took it took me a long time to learn, is that. Um, the things that we do are not the things that we are. So there is a huge right. distinction between these two things. So right. like, and if if you start thinking this way, you realize that if things end or you have to leave them for one reason or, or another, they are just the treasures mm-hmm. that you take with you to your next adventure. Exactly. That's a good metaphor mm-hmm. for, for what I'm talking about. The whole thing, the example, the danger is to become is to let what you do become what you are. There's a danger there, and that, a good example of that is it happens with Burning Man, because it's such a powerful event for so many people. It's a very powerful event for so many people, and they started. We started a thing that ended up becoming Playa names. I don't know if you know what that is, but that's a name that people adopt when they go to this environment and they adopt this name and a persona and uh the danger we did that in the suicide club we would do these detective games and i would have a fake name i was like yeah i was like vito latonio i was like a gangster you know like hey what are you doing jonesy they're gonna beat this guy up and find out what's going on we played these characters right but they were characters and when we went to the desert we started we did the same thing we'd make up these goofy characters right and uh I remember one of my partners was, uh, he would bilocate uh, Danger Ranger. He took this name Danger Ranger, and he's out on the field, <laughs> ranging the field. And he, and, and he make up stories about how he would bilocate, be in two places at once. And he created a mythology for himself. Uh, and my, my avatar, my character was John the Bathless, naked, covered in mud with a 12-gauge shotgun, running around like with my hair sticking out. And it was a great character, but it was a fucking character. It's not me. Burning Man became so powerful for so many people, really powerful, and people accumulated power from it, that many people that I know became their characters. And then they couldn't not be their characters when they were around other people because other people gave them power because of their character. What, what is the danger in it? Danger is that you become insane and you become greedy and you become a, a monster, really, at the end of it. That's quite possible because you allow yourself to become this fictional character that you've created that has these magical powers, and you start to believe it. And that's very dangerous. I mean, you need to be humbled constantly, you know, if you're, especially if you've done things that people really regard highly. You have to be, or else you just become a human inhuman. I've watched it happen to people I know personally, and it's very unpleasant. Uh, I think it happens to a lot of very famous people. You know, they just they become this thing that they've created to protect themselves and to, and to accumulate power and interest and uh, maybe they have a special talent as an actor would, and uh, it gets out of control and then they and then it controls them, and I've watched that happen and it's really bizarre and it's unpleasant and I want nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so when I leave here, I'm going to shave this beard and you won't recognize me. <laughs> so you're speaking to the real John, right? Um, my character here was a guy with a beard mm-hmm. for this event. But yes, I'm, I'm speaking candidly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I change the way I look all the time because I get bored with it. In this podcast, we are talking about transformation and about how people can get empowered to oh, yeah. go through transformations. But what you just said uh, shows that there is a dark side to it. Oh, absolutely. So how can you try to protect yourself? Well, let's say the little things. So start on another tangent that's related but not direct. Let's say with the billboards, right? Okay, people would look at what we do, and we go for these giant freeway billboards, and you change them. We change neon and stuff like that. Well, I can't do that. That's just too. I, I can do that. But what people can do is they can be on the subway, and there can be an advert there that says something that they don't agree with, and they can take their magic marker and they can change what it says. They can change what it says, says in their mind. So the idea, which I tried to get out, and we, I constantly would reiterate this in interviews, is that you don't have to climb up on a giant billboard. You all you all you need is like a balmy night and a crayon and an idea. And you can do what we're doing. It's the same thing. You're, what you're doing is you're creating a dialogue with these advertisers rather than simply being spoken to. So that's one way to do that. But as far as like keeping from becoming like a raving egomaniac because you've gotten attention for what you've done, I don't know. I'm a janitor. I'm, I'm a, I clean toilets and mop. Part of one of my day jobs, I'm a janitor. So that keeps me from being too, from getting any errors. I work with. I'm working class. I've always, my day jobs have always been working, working class jobs always. So I work with guys uh, and gals who uh, you know who are working class, didn't go to college, and for the most part are not. They're not stupid at all. They're intelligent people. They just don't have the, cert, the same toolkit that somebody who... And actually, engineers are a good example. Um, you have an engineer who's a brilliant uh, engineer who's studied and, uh, and very conversant with all types of uh, aspects of his, of his profession. If he hasn't ever built anything, if he hasn't spent several years as a builder, he's a fucking awful engineer. I'm sorry. I've worked with engineers a lot in my field. And uh, the best engineers are the ones who are truly brilliant, who also actually worked as a carpenter for three or four years, or a machinist, or a builder of some type, because then they actually see how their ideas are implemented in the real world. And I know a lot about bridges. I'm not an engineer, and I don't have a mind of an engineer, but I'm very interested in uh, large-scale public uh, works projects because I like urban exploring, I like urban environments. And there's an, an area of urban exploring called live infrastructure exploring, which means going into live infrastructure, which is the most dangerous and the most extreme and it has the most risk, so not that many people do it. And I do occasionally. It's, it's risky. Um, and so, so because of that, I, I've come to love and understand big structures. And with engineering, you know, if you don't know practical matters, you know, you're really not going to be a good engineer if you're a civil engineer. Just not. You mentioned generosity and gift-giving as yes. a very important thing. Very often these events, they are made expensive and scarce. So like only few people can, can get in. There's scarcity and there's generosity. As mm-hmm. in a way, they are like again two things that are maybe in. I don't know if they are in opposition or they are. They're just different things. How do you see this? Well, you, you know, you have to differentiate between classes because different classes of people have access to different things and. The higher class of people financially have access to anything they want materially, but not necessarily spiritually. Spiritual is the wrong word, but you know, aesthetically, emotionally. And this is a big difference. So when you pay for an event, if you pay for an experience, there's always an expectation. You're buying a product, which is why I'm an amateur. I've always been an amateur. I'll never be a professional. I don't want to do events for money. I'll never do events for money. I just have no interest in it. I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's bad. Some people who do it are awesome and their methods of doing it, many of them are quite ethical. 
they're providing a product, but they are providing a product. That's the bottom line. When you're doing exploring and with other equals, and it's not for money, you know, you're all taking the same risk. There's an entirely different ethic about what you're doing. Very many similarities. Maybe the mechanics are the same, the events are similar, but the inner core of it's different. A person who's buying a product is always separated from the experience a little bit. You can't completely engage them. There's always a separation. And it's impossible. I believe that it's impossible to do away with that separation. It can be small. If you're excellent at organizing your company and your event that you're creating, if you're really good at it, uh, you can make that, that differentiation tiny. But it's still there. It's like, oh, right? But whereas if you didn't pay for it or if you're all chipping in, it's like, ah, oh, it's too bad there's no hot water. Very different way of yeah. looking at things expectation-wise. And now, because of an experience is brilliant enough, and if the people buying the experience are open-minded enough, they'll forego things like that. Well, there's no hot water, or I'm used to having hot water and room service, and people give me a foot massage while I'm reading my paper, but, that, but I'm getting something else here in exchange for that. Some people will forego that. Other people will go, fuck that, I'm going to Bali, and I'm going to have my mediated experience. So yeah. if you're all in it together and nobody's profiting financially from it, which is a separate thing, Profiting financially from a creative endeavor, those, they're, they're related in that you're creating an experience to, to do making money. You may be as interested in the experience that you're mediating and creating as you are in making money, but if you are like that and if things become very difficult financially, unless you put all of your attention on the finances and the business, you won't be doing it for very long. You'll be out of business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll give you an example of gift giving in its most extreme sense was a group that I have a great admiration for called Paris UX. And they're an underground group in Paris for the last 25 years. They're, all the kids in that group are about, they're, they're in their late 40s, 50s now. So they're the generation right behind me. I became aware of them a few years ago, and then we ended up meeting and becoming quite close over the years, over the decades. And they, when they were, there's a group of kids who, when they were, they were 15, 16 years old in Paris. In Paris, all the adventurous kids go in the catacombs. You've heard of the catacombs. Everybody's heard of the catacombs, right? Catacombs is this massive underground system of tunnels that were limestone tunnels dug in order to mine limestone after Paris had been an open pit mine for the Romans. And really Real estate became so valuable that they couldn't open pit mine anymore. They had to tunnel. Tunnels everywhere. And so the openings to the tunnels, of which there are many, and they they change over time because the authorities close some and some open. The ones that are known of to the community at large, the kids will go in and party there. So the first few hundred yards in, they're all tagged, and they'll have giant raves and parties at night. That system keeps going way off into the distance. And out of all the kids in Paris that go into these tunnels, maybe one out of a hundred of them become fanatics about the tunnels and they just go. They become cataphiles, is what they call them. And so this crew, they're a 15-year-old crew of kids, and I've seen pictures of them, and they're great. They had a wonderful uh, aesthetic. They're like wearing their braids, and they're like really intrepid looking. We're you know, 16-year-old kids. Let's go. So they were exploring the can. They were very proud of their explorations, and they didn't tell anybody. They're secret, secret, secret. And they go and explore all these incredible tunnels, and, and they knew all the entryways in the buildings, so they're entryways in these giant buildings and structures. They do all this stuff for years and years and years. And uh, this is like 25 years ago. Anyway, they found, let's just say they found a way to access certain areas. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. And uh, they figured out how to get into um, the Pantheon, 
which is a giant domed building in Paris. You may have seen it. This is well known. First, they did one thing first, which is they did an underground cinema for about 15 years, which they were doing. And they finally got busted. They were finally caught. And it, that, that made international news. They didn't want to get pressed for it, but it was inevitable. They got out, word got out that they were doing these. And so it was all 20, 15 years they were doing this underground cinema. They'd bring in 50 people into the tunnels, had a beautiful cinema set up in this giant cave, and they'd do cinema. So the next thing they did, which is the most incredible gift I've ever, I've ever run into in, uh, in pranks, and urban exploration is they were sneaking to the Pantheon. Pantheon has a big clock uh, that had, hadn't worked for 50 years. It had been broken. And so they snuck into the building and they figured out it's a giant building. They found these recesses up in the dome and they found a place where they built a false wall. They built a shop behind the false wall. They engaged the services of a clockmaker, a metallurgist, and uh, all these other different people who are experts. And over the course of the next year, they rebuilt the clock from the inside. And they got and then they got it totally working again. They did a really good job on it. And then one day they turned it on. So people are walking around in Paris saying, Oh look, the government finally fixed the Pantheon <laughs> clock. The government flipped out, went berserk, and they were incensed that somebody did this. So they tracked them down and found them and they were gonna prosecute them. And the public outcry was so huge. The, the government was forced to like, okay, they were national heroes. And so, and, and this was gift. They did, this was a gift to, their, to Paris. It was a gift to the world. It was a prank. It was illegal as hell. They were sneaking into this giant state building, you know. But they just did it. And they gave it away. And it cost them a lot of money to do. The people contributed a lot of time and energy. It took them a year. That's the greatest gift I've ever. And I, my hat's off to them, Paris UX. Uh, what was the other group? They, the, uh, they had a catafile name, uh, the Perforated Mexicans. And it's some obscure etymology for that name. But they were, I, lo- I love them. They're awesome. That's, to me, that's the best, one of the best representations of, of this type of uh, activity. You talk a lot about empowerment. What is empowerment? You empower people by creating a space that they can make themselves, that they can do themselves. You don't do it for them. You, know, you can't do anything for anybody, really. They have to do it themselves. But sometimes they might even know what they might not even know what they want to do. But seeing other people do things, they can decide, and then giving, creating a space in a in a collaboration, a confederation of people and groups that allow them to be themselves, to become yourself in a way. You know, like my friends who became, a, you know, the tour guide and the costumer and the historian. They became themselves through being encouraged by their confederation of fellows to uh, do what they wanted to and to you know, take their creative life and make it into their, their creative imagination and make it into their real life. Beautiful ending. John, thank you. See for your gift of this conversation yes. and the gifts that you're giving all the way with the experiences. You're, you're quite welcome. All right. Thank you so very much. Thanks so much. <laughs> Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at WinnerDog. More details you can find on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com.